Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Sunday, October 18th, and this is the weekly market update. So, in this week's reality check, I want to review an article that I read this weekend and also heard the interview on Financial Sense NewsHour, uh, Jim Paplava's site. And the article was written by Louis Vincent Gov. And it's from Govkel. Uh, they do research, and I think money management f in France. And the name of the article is "Cover Your Ass: The Guiding Principle of Our Time." And the question is asked at the beginning of the article: What is the dominant guiding principle of Western societies today? And Mr. Gov Gave goes on to say, at the risk of sounding crass. Let me suggest it is the, quote, cover your ass or CYA principle. This principle has always been fairly prominent in participative democracies, but now has gone into hyperdrive, so much so that the CYA principle is also now an important driving force even in financial markets. So he goes through and discusses various examples, and I think this is probably one of the best well-thought-out articles I've read in a very long time because it basically, people, I think, ask the question, like, why, why is there so much stasis in our leadership? Why is there so much inability to solve problems? And so we, you know, we have the population in these uh, democracies, in the Western democracies, vacillating back and forth, you know, between Democrat, Republican, between socialist and uh, center-right or whatever, back and forth in Europe, back and forth in the U.S., and nothing ever gets solved. And you have these huge problems, so we can go down the list. You know, we talk about um, the declining middle class, the impending uh, issues with the pensions in the Western democracies, um, automation, the hollowing out of manufacturing and uh, decent jobs for the middle class, upward mobility, wealth gaps, uh, all these issues. And I think the, when he gets into this, he talks about uh, using, for example, like COVID as an example. I think it was a good example. You know, I remember if you go back and look at some of my videos from like March, I kind of shut it down. I didn't talk too much about it because, first of all, censor the YouTube and everything was censoring. They didn't want to have any kind of discussion around, uh, any alternative uh, discussion around uh, anything that deviated from the, shall we say, establishment uh, narrative. And I had went out and looked. I'm not, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a, uh, I know nothing about viruses. But I did a bunch of research, and I'm not talking about fringe people like Plandemic or videos like that. I'm talking about people that are epidemiologists or epidemiologists, study diseases and pandemics, people with credentials, and they were given no voice. John Ioannidis at Stanford University is a perfect example. Um, other people that study these viruses, okay? And, you know, what we saw here in the this huge reaction. Now, when we initially had this, of course, leadership is going to react and, and because there was a lot of unknowns, shall we say. And then, you know, we were originally going to flatten the curve. We didn't want the ICUs to be overrun. 
that was the big danger. And we didn't have enough ventilators. We didn't have enough masks, blah, blah, blah. And those never really became real problems. And now we're, you know, coming up into the fall and we've seen examples in various countries that didn't lock down like Sweden, Belarusia, some other ones. And they're, you know, their curves are down, their, their death rates are down. They're comparable with surrounding uh, situations. They didn't lock their populations down. And you see different policies here even in the U.S. And then we see some you know, states opening up and then some, some pe- people saying, well, we're, ne- we're not going to open up again. We're ne- you know, somebody in the Army just said recently, we're never going to go back to normal. So, I get- so what I'm saying to you is, is the article kind of talks about, uses as an example of the overreaction by politicians in leadership because they don't want to be seen as doing nothing. They don't want to, you know, we have a 24-hour news cycle. Uh, we have this whole Twitter sphere where everybody has an opinion, everybody has a say, uh, the public, the mob is screaming all the time and throwing rotten fruit at everybody, uh, figuratively, uh, and you know you don't want to be on the wrong side of that. So you CYA and you overcompensate or you overdo things, and that way nobody can come back to you and say, uh, you know, you didn't do enough, uh, and now this happened. You know, you can never know, know an unknown. No one can know the future. And like I said, when we started doing these lockdowns, and even now I say the same thing, you know, no one, you can count the knowns. We know how many people are out of work. We know how many businesses have been destroyed. But, you know, we never saw, we couldn't anticipate all the other things, the suicides, the domestic violence. Uh, A lot of the other things were not anticipated. And, but, you know, there's no discussion around that. And he goes on to talk about um, perfect example right here. He says, now that every policy choice is reviewed and debated in real time by millions of people around the world, CYA has become all important. Politicians have to put policies in place to hedge against the wildest tail risks imaginable. That's what we thought, right? I mean, you, you would have thought that this COVID thing was going to be like a zombie apocalypse. At the same time, the first instinct of policymakers and of investors, but more on this later, is to avoid doing anything that diverges too far from the pack. Any policymaker anywhere looking at the opprobrium heaped on Sweden will surely agree with John Kenneth Galbraith's observation that, quote, it is far, far safer to be wrong with the majority than to be right alone, unquote. It's absolutely true. This is absolutely true. Uh, he goes on to talk about the policy responses uh, after COVID, uh, not just with COVID, but in 2008 during the great financial crisis, uh, the tech bubble blow up, and the view that I've talked about before that we never let the market clear. We never are going to let anybody feel any pain. We're not going to let anybody go out of business. You know, I've talked about this before. Before COVID, I thought the, the, the instrument of our destruction was going to be the corporate bond blow-up. Um, you know, 25% of the companies in the S&P are zombie companies. They, they don't make enough money to literally pay the interest on their debt. And I thought that that was going to be, you know, the next recession we had was going to push that corporate bond uh, defaults into, you know, record uh into the stratosphere and that was going to be the next financial crisis lo and behold i didn't know that we were going to have a virus and have an overreaction by government officials and then have the treasury and fed conspire to buy the debt of 
you know, corporate debt and basically, you know, head off that day of reckoning. You know, there's nothing wrong with poorly run companies going out of business. You know, those assets, the ideas that are in the company, the patents, the, manu- the facilities, they don't go away. They just change hands from uh, people that are mismanaging them to people that can better manage them. It's called creative uh, destruction. And it's necessary for, just like it's necessary uh, to burn off the underbrush in a forest. And if you let it build up, if you don't let it clear, you see what happened in California. They didn't manage their forests properly. Environmentalists wouldn't let them do preemptive and prophylactic burns to clear underbrush, to manage the forest properly. And so when all this tinder, dry tinder and garbage and waste, forest waste built up and something set it off, you have these humongous wildfires. And it's the same thing in the financial markets. We have um, policies from the government and from the Federal Reserve that create distortions in the economy. These distortions build up over time, and then they come home to roost. They manifest as a crisis, and then there's larger and larger amounts of more intervention needed to deal with the former built-up distortions and the current distortions. It just is never-ending. Because, you know, who's going to step up as a politician and say, we're just going to let the market clear, we're going to let banks go out of business. We're going to let poor-run businesses go out of business. I mean, you'd have, you know, we're, we're to the point now where, you know, you're not going to be able to allow 10 15% unemployment. You'll be thrown out of office. You'll be thrown, the, the, the two- and four-year election cycle doesn't allow for it. And now there's so much uh, distortion. There's so much intervention. There's so much manipulation that you can never now let it go down. Policymakers are so afraid of any type of market-clearing event any kind of deflationary debt collapse that, you know, it's, they're going to do whatever they need to do. I was listening to a, to a podcast, an interview with Grant Williams and Bill Fleckenstein with Felix Zuloff, and they were talking about the debt and the MMT that's coming down the line. And Felix Zuloff said, so I, almost, I listen to these podcasts while I'm driving back and forth to work, and I almost drove off the road. You know, he says by the end of this decade, he can very easily see the Fed's balance sheet at a 40 to $50 trillion. I mean, that was shocking. And this is a guy who used to be on the Barron's Roundtable. He is not some whacked-out conspiracy guy or whacked-out financial guy. This is a legitimate guy that's been around for 40 years, a Swiss money manager, a market historian, somebody that's been through all kinds of bear markets. And, I mean, it's a very interesting interview. Of course, I'll put it uh, a link to that on my uh, other site on uh, Blogspot, uh, where I catalog uh, all of the great interviews that I do listen to. But, you know, that's an example. They're not going, they can't at this point. If In a Western democracy, if we let th- things actually clear out, you would have, it'd be French Revolution time, it'd be Russian Revolution time. Heads would be getting chopped off. Things would get so bad. So the interventions will continue. The market distortions will get bigger. But as speculators, that is what is necessary. It's, it's not necessary, I guess, but it it's, provides prime hunting grounds for speculators because it, there's so much uh, opportunity because of these distortions to, to take advantage. So that may sound bad to some people, but you know, I don't make the game. I don't make the rules. I'm just in the sandbox that somebody else put together. You know, I've said before what I would do if I was king for a day, but that will never happen. So, you know, we don't 
operate with the way we want things to be. We operate based on how they are. Um, going on, he goes on to say, moving on to the far less controversial physical and monetary policy responses to the recession, can there be any doubt again that policy has been driven above all by the CYA principle? Absolutely. What, pol what policymaker wants to espouse the Hippocratic principle of first do no harm and let markets and prices find their own footing? None. That's absolutely right. As Anatoly has argued, policymakers are scrambling always to do more with ever bigger budget deficits funded by ever more money printing. So I'm going to put a link to this article. I suggest you read it. Uh, I don't know if the interview is available. I think it's behind a paywall at Financial Sense NewsHour. But if you, I've always recommended that people get a subscription to that. They have uh, a weekly market update there. Plus they have three to four interviews a week or book reviews with uh, very uh, smart people. And uh, it's about 100 bucks a year, but I, I think it's well worth it. But uh, anyways, this article, I'll put a link to it. It was on Zero Hedge and on the GavCal website. I'll put a link to it. I would, I'm going to reread it again. It was, it was really an excellent article, and it really does quite accurately describe the current situation. And, you know, I don't... A lot of people subscribe to, like, nefarious, you know, New World Order, cabals are going to they're using these crises. I mean, no, that's not what it is. These people that are in politics and policymakers aren't, they're just dummies. They want to keep the game going. They're part of a, they're part of a uh, club, and they want to keep, keep it moving forward so they can, so because of the life that they enjoy in, inside of that. There's no big conspiracy. I mean, you can't get three or four friends to agree to go to the same restaurant or movie, and these people are somehow getting together in some cabal. I don't buy it. What I buy is a bunch of dumb politicians, uh, sociopathic tendencies, narcissists, people that uh, are able to cream off the good life, near-do-wells, and they want to keep the game going. So they'll do and say whatever they need to do to keep it going, and, you know, uh, and then leave. No one's incentivized on a two- and four-year election cycle with Bubis Americanus pulling the levers to fix the long-term problems. Social Security and Medicare will not get fixed. The debt will not get fixed. The pension problems in this country will not get fixed. The declining middle class will not get fixed. It's, you know, we're in a country in decline with a lot of problems and no leadership. And if the guiding principle CYA, they're not going to get fixed. So no need to cry about it, no need to get upset about it, no need to go staple a piece of cardboard to a stick and go protest. You just need to assess how things are and then look for opportunities where the government and uh, our political class create opportunities for us to operate as speculators. That's my advice. But it's an outstanding article. Wanted to point this out, uh, another excellent interview on Eric Townsend's Macro Voices. I'll put a link to it. Um, it was uh, Mike Alkin, who many listeners here are familiar with, of the Sashim Cove uh, Partners uh, Fund that does uranium investing, and uh, Guy Keller, who's the Tribeca, I think it's they have a uranium fund, it's based in Australia, and uh, Eric Townsend in, uh, interviewed them, and Mike Alkin shared the, uh, it was on uh, Twitter, uh, various people, but they have a new presentation out about the uranium market. I'll put up one slide here, but I'll put a link to the uh, overall presentation, which I suggest you take a look at. 
what I wanted to put up here, this on the left is the previous uh, bottom uh, in the uranium market um, back, uh, you know, over 10, 15 years ago. This is the current and going forward. What you will note is that the title of the slide is material, Materially Better Setup Now Versus Prior Bottom. This dotted line is the, re, new, the uranium requirements in hundreds of millions of pounds on the left. This is uranium price on the right. And you will note that uh, for the most part, uh, after we made the uh, all-time highs in uranium price, you know, we never really were in a big deficit position with uranium supplies. And the contrast here is that we are, in fact, uh, in deficit and will continue to be in deficit um, uh, as the forecasts are showing. So, you know, um, the question is how much supply is still out there to be, ch to be chewed up um, uh, as far as this production, existing production and secondary supply, how much overhang is still out there and before this fact can kick in and, and allow for an increase in price. And, uh, you know, we've been talking about this for a couple years and uh, nothing's happened and people have become discouraged, but uh, I am not. Uh, like I said, you can, you, I've said this over and over again and I'll continue to say it. Supply continues to decrease. We are living off investments that were made in the uranium in uranium mines over 10 or 15 years ago. Those are coming up to exhaustion. No one is committing new capital to build new uranium mines, but there are all kinds of new nuclear plants being built. So demand is increasing and supply is contracting. And I think the this bull market that's going to happen, as I've said before, I believe will be bigger than the last one simply because there's such a, going to be such a time lag before the price signals become high enough to incentivize new mines to get built, that deficit will be there. And it's going to be a game of musical chairs for the consumers of uranium. Uh, and uh, I see no abatement in the building of nuclear power plants around the world, maybe in the United States and Europe. Uh, like I said, uh, they're becoming less and less relevant. I'll have a slide later on about that. But uh, um, the rest of the world is moving forward. Uh, over, you know, over 50 reactors currently in construction, 100 some odd reactors uh, in the planning stage, and three, 300 and some odd in the proposed stage. So it's moving forward, uh, and it's just an inevitable situation. Uh, the interview is very good. The slide deck's good because it focuses on some other issues around, you know, the investable universe of uranium stocks. You know, there's probably 40 or 50 companies, but half of them aren't even investable. And that's something I think a lot of people forget as we continue to see dilution uh, uh, and announcements of companies having offerings. You know, you, you really should be in cash conservation mode now uh, if you're one of these uh, juniors. But uh, that's a conversation for another time. But that, that is discussed and I think that the, I'll put a link to the interview. I suggest you listen to it. It's pretty good. Again, uh, Mike Alkin and uh, Guy Keller from Tribeca. So, you know, I continue to be bullish on oil, longer, t medium and longer term. Um, I sound like a broken record. But, uh, you know, more and more facts are coming to light, I believe, that are that are leading me to believe that I'm on the right side of this. Um, 
One of the things here is uh, a little factoid here. Oxy CEO says U.S. oil production will never see pre-pandemic levels. America's oil production will never again reach the record 13 million barrels a day set earlier this year, just before the pandemic devastated global demand, according to Oxy Petroleum Corporation, Occidental. Quote, it's just going to be too difficult to replace the 2 million barrels a day of production that we've lost and then to further grow beyond that, Chief Executive Officer Vicki Holub said Wednesday at the Energy Intelligence Forum. Over the next three to four years, there's going to be moderate restoration of production, but not at high growth. And that's what a lot of other people are saying, too. And we need to note that because of the tremendous growth in the shale uh, oil production, a lot of other production around the world, a lot of other reserves, a lot of other investment didn't happen because of this production coming online. And it filled a void. And as this doesn't come back, um, if you are a believer that demand will come back, and I am, uh, to pre-pandemic levels eventually, um, we're still, you know, not far off the highs if you look at uh, Chinese data and, and some other places. Um, again, we're in another situation where the, the, the price of the commodity is not sufficient to lead to more uh, investment that's needed to replace the reserves that are being pumped out of the ground. One of the things I did like, which she said, uh, I found interesting, it says, uh, unlike some of her European peers, Holub sees strong long-term demand for oil. Quote, I expect we'll get to peak supply before we get to peak demand, she said. And I thought that was interesting because that is flying in the face of what we're seeing as the current fashionable opinion regarding energy markets. Uh, we've seen the end of demand. We're going to electrify everything, ESG, blah, 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 beyond petroleum, all that stuff. And uh, I don't believe that. I think the emerging markets have, you know, we have 3 billion people that have a long way to go in their oil uh, consumption S-curve growth. And uh, that's going to present an opportunity. In fact, I think people are going to be shocked how high the oil price goes over the next few years. Another good uh, or interesting article, I should say. You know, I don't want to get into confirmation bias, uh, but uh, some of these things are very interesting. They need to be taken into consideration because these are things that uh, I believe are correct assessments. QEP's Vil Van Lowe says country's oil production capacity is lower than believed. He's talking about the U.S. He goes on. This is a, uh, one of the, uh, this is a private uh, trading firm, oil trading firm. Uh, you know, and what they say is a fracking binge in the American shale industry has permanently damaged the country's oil and gas reserves, threatening hopes for a production recovery and U.S. energy independence, according to one of the sector's top investors. Quote, that's the dirty little secret about shale, unquote, Mr. Van Lowe told the Financial Times, noting wells had often been drilled too closely to one another. Quote, what we've done for the last five years is we've drilled the heart out of the watermelon, unquote. So this is, you know, some people were suggesting this was the case, that the tier one, if you want to call it, the low-hanging fruit, high grading, uh, that was the uh, opinion of, Le of Goring and Rosenswag and some of their um, uh, analysis. And uh, if that's in fact the case, then even if prices do go higher, we may not be able to restore the production 
that we saw in the past, and that would corroborate what the CEO of Oxy has said, and many others, by the way. It's not just uh, the CEO of Oxy. I mean, we are, you know, we were having, before we had the shale revolution in the U.S., you know, we were, you know, drilling further and further offshore, talking about drilling in the Arctic. You know, if oil is that plentiful, we wouldn't be going to these way, way out, you know, high, uh, high risk environments to try to get oil and gas. So the shale phenomena was a, uh, I think, a one-time roll of the dice, and it's over with now. Uh, as far as the growth, ma mega growth we saw, you know, I, I said this in a previous video. There, were, I, I haven't dug the articles up, but I should go back and try to look in the Wayback Machine. You know, there were people during the heyday of drill, baby, drill, and all that stuff uh, that were suggesting that uh, U.S. production could get to, you know, 15, 20, 25 million barrels a day, and we were going to take over the world and be the new, the new Saudi Arabia, the new big dog in the oil industry. And now, you know, maybe it's a matter of just sediment being low that everybody's pessimistic. Maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle. I don't know. But uh, um, what I'm doing is looking to places that have trophy-type assets, long reserve life indexes that already have a lot of their capital spent. And what am I talking about? I think there's tremendous opportunity in the Canadian oil sands. Uh, you look at companies like CNQ, Suncor, they're, they're very cheap. Uh, they have spent a lot of money, billions of dollars, building out their facilities. Those facilities are up and running. And they have reserves of, you know, 40 to 50 years. And uh, if oil prices get back to 70, 80, or 100, or 100 plus dollars a barrel, these things are money machines, and they will have tremendous moves. Um, so it's something to look at. Uh, in fact, if we don't think that the oil uh, demand is really going to go away like many people are thinking. Here's a chart from Jesse Felder, another guy I've been following lately. Pretty good. You know, you can make these charts about anything, right? Gold versus this, gold versus that, gold versus oil, whatever. But I thought it was interesting because this is a gold to Dow Jones industrial average ratio. Basically, what it's showing you is that even with the big run we've had in gold lately, you know, relative to stock prices, gold is still fairly cheap. I mean, you go back to the last big bull market in gold, and the gold to Dow Jones Industrial Average Ratio got to 0 0.8. You know, we're down at like less than 0 0.1. Um, at the last big move that we had in gold back when it made its previous recent high, it was like 1.5. So we're, we, we have a ways to go, I believe. Um, I think that as things... Uh, move the way we think they're going to move relative to government policy, monetary policy, and the way that they're going to, the governments are going to try to deal with this debt. It's a perfect environment for hard assets, gold in particular. Um, and I think that, you know, you have so much, so many people on the side of the canoe with high tech and, you know, Facebook and the FANG stocks and all that. Um, these these things don't go to the moon, right? They get overvalued, and then you have mean reversion. And I think this is a, a perfect example. So when people ask me if I'm still bullish on gold, yes, I am. Um, I don't try to time these things. Uh, I'm, I made a video earlier this week, uh, and I've been nibbling back on some of my gold stocks that I like. I mean, I keep my core position, but I traded out of Caledonia. I'm back in it. You can check that video out. Uh, it was earlier this week. 
And, you know, I think, again, this decade, I believe, I just don't see how they're going to get out of this any other way except for debasing currencies, all kinds of funky tricks that are not going to lead to a lot of stability. And there's going to be a lot of, there's going to be a lot of instability. There's going to be a lot of um, crisis, let's put it that way. And I think that that's going to be good for gold. Another thing I wanted to point out, this is a pretty good tweet by a guy that I like following, Meb Faber. And he asked the question, uh, I forget what the question, there was a question above this tweet, but basically um, talking about market caps of the world and the what was the percentage of um, emerging markets uh, level of GDP relative to the U.S. and 60%. And we've seen that a long time ago where the rest of the world is increasing uh, as they urbanize, as their economies grow, their percentage of world GDP continues to go up. And that's going to continue for decades. That's what I've been telling people. And that's not going to stop. Uh, other countries starting from a lower base that are, you know, opening up, uh, pursuing economic policies that are conducive to capital formation and to growth. That's the, uh, that seems to be the, the movement around the world, ex the Western democracies that are moving more to a socialist statist stasis, if you will. And so the correct answer here is that 60% of the outside the U.S., that's how big the economy is, but the emerging markets cap, market cap is only 12%. And the average U.S. allocation to uh, emerging markets is only 3%. So you have a valuation discount of 50% to the U.S. So there's a tremendous opportunity in emerging and frontier markets. That's what I've been telling you. You look at a country like the country of Georgia. It's in the top 10 in so many metrics as far as capital formation, ability to start a business, uh, less state intervention in the economy, uh, corruption indexes, it's been, they've been moving in that direction. So there's tremendous opportunity in a country like that. You're seeing it across the continent of Africa. You know, there's 50 some odd countries there, so you can't just put it, make a general statement, but there's many countries there, Rwanda, Tanzania, various countries that are, that are uh, changing, becoming more market orientated, okay? And they are seeing tremendous growth. Okay, and their markets are extremely cheap. I've talked about Uzbekistan. Okay, I've talked about uh, Myanmar. I'm talking about these places that are basically starting out at such low levels, and they have nowhere to go but up. And they they are shifting from being statist, being uh, having a lot of government intervention in their economies, and going the other way, becoming more capitalistic, if you will while we in the West are becoming less capitalistic. So that is a arbitrage opportunity. It's also an excellent opportunity because it's an information arbitrage. It's, it's, it's not only an information arbitrage, it's kind of a mechanical arbitrage. What do I mean by that? You can't just pick up your phone and trade stocks in Uzbekistan or Georgia. You have to make an effort to do that. Um, if you want to invest in some of these countries in Africa, you have to get you have to literally get on a plane. Now there's other vehicles to do that, and we talk about that in the actionable intelligence alert newsletter. Um, especially a deal that's just now happening that's combining one of the largest Canadian finances financiers with uh, the top private equity firm in Africa, and there's a way to get into that. 
that's traded in the public markets. But that's an example. These places are going to, going over the next 10, 20 years, are going to be signif- worth significantly more than they are now. And they have less debt. I mean, you look at a country like Uzbekistan, I mean, they literally have almost hardly any debt at all. The debt to uh, GDP is like 25%. There's no leverage in the economy. There's no government debt, corporate debt, personal debt. It hasn't been leveraged up yet. And that's just another opportunity as it does become leveraged over time to, that the market caps will expand. I mean, right now in Uzbekistan, for example, you can get, I think, something like in uh, a CD or something or, or a deposit in a, in a bank is like 13 or 14 percent. And it's coming down, right, because as, defla- as deflation, as inflation recedes in a lot of these countries, the ability of the banking system to lower rates, a central bank to lower rates, drag rates down you still have high dividends in the stock market. I mean, you have companies there with dividends of 10, 12, 15%. So you're going to start seeing capital shift from people just putting their money into the short-term money market-type instruments into, uh, into the stock market, these equity markets. And the valuations are, are almost giveaway. I mean, they're not giveaway, but they're darn close to it. I mean, I've seen things 03 price to book, 0.5 price to books, things like that. I mean, your, your asymmetry and your potential over the next 10 years is tremendous. You know, and the correlation to the West is probably, you know, I don't know, but it's, it's not very correlated. It's probably more inversely correlated than correlated. Somebody probably should do some work on that. So um, I think that this is an opportunity. I mean, I could do a whole podcast on this, and I probably will, because I need to get into it more in depth. But this is a tremendous opportunity, and you, with the with the communications we have now, with the ability to go to these different places, there's no reason not to be looking at the entire world. Don't just be a homer and look at you know have home country bias. I mean, I get emails and letters all the time from people. Uh, or messages. Why, 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 you know, why are you talking about Canadian stocks? Or why did you talk about Australian stocks? Or no one cares about, you know, these uh, things you're talking about in Africa. I think that's just, that's just myopia. You shouldn't think that way. I mean, there's tremendous opportunity if you have a long-term ability to think long-term. The the amount of capital that's going to flow into these places is going to be tremendous. And we've seen it before. You know, I, I remember when I was younger, 20 years ago when places like Thailand, Malaysia, uh, these places were taken off. They called them the tiger cubs, tiger economies, you know, Taiwan, South Korea. And they, if you go back and look at the growth as the company, as the country's um, GDP grew and the market caps followed along and capital flew in there. So um, there was tremendous returns for those who recognize that. And the same thing's being repeated now. So it's something to think about. It's something to contemplate. I'll probably do another video on it because it, re- it probably requires that level of attention. All right, guys, that's it for uh, this week. Um, appreciate the uh, viewership. Appreciate the uh, support. And uh, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you.